Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Miller's Crossing starring Gabriel Byrne, Marsha Gay Harden, John Turturro, John Polito, and Albert Finney, written by Joel and Ethan Cohen and directed by Joel Cohen. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue on our cask, Turf War, uh, looking at films within the mob gangster genre. Last week we had Carlito's Way, and this week from 1990, Miller's Crossing. Matt, I think I told you when, when you were leaving last week, I've only seen this once, maybe about five or six years ago. And my direct follow-up to that was, I can tell you next to nothing about what happened in that movie. <laughs> Not an impactful film the first time. I think so, or maybe I was distracted, but it is busy, and it is um, very dense. There's a lot of characters. The way they speak, you have to kind of have subtitles on. There's kind of, kind of, it's not one you can't, you can't like watch it and have like your phone in your hand. You got to like be in it to, in it to understand. Yes, exactly. But uh, th- this should be an interesting conversation. Talking about the Coen brothers for the for the very first time, uh, uh, celebrated filmmakers. I this last week I just been kind of going through their filmography and being like, yeah, I do like a lot of a lot of their films, and I kind of tiered their their work much like I've done with like Hitchcock and yep. some other filmmakers. So I think there's definite tiers on their type of filmmaking. Came to the exact same conclusion. <laughs> okay, so I can't wait to talk about it. But let's have some more of this Amador uh, double barrel uh, bourbon whiskey. Cheers to you, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Still good. Excellent. I have a surprise midway through the episode. Oh, okay. But uh, I'll, we'll, we'll let that play out when we get to it. But let's go ahead and get this party started and get going with our flight question. Long-time uh, collaborator with the Coen brothers, composer Carter Burwell. I'm almost positive, Matt, that he's composed almost all of their films. Maybe one or two in there that he didn't do, but... Very interesting. They work with uh, the, a lot of the same people, actors, cinematographers, um, a lot of the same collaborators. So being that we're talking about them for the first time, I, I can see us coming back to these guys to do different casks. So let's kind of see how we casked out what our top three Coen Brothers films are. So let's start at number three. Number three for me, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, I think it's um, a very hmm, ambitious endeavor to tackle that the way they did, to do the Iliad in that version. Uh, I like Clooney. That's number three for me. I don't have a lot to say about it. Do you like Tim Blake Nelson? (laughs) I do. um, We'll get to this with the nightcap. Okay. But... This is a short three for me. Mm. There's We're talking about those tiers. Mm-hmm. There's these three, and then there's a pretty precipitous fall off. For okay, me. interesting. So we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure. Okay. What's I, your number three? I, I like that one, too. I like the music that yeah. it's almost sort of musical. Yeah. And the color grading, which had never really been attempted in, in film, so it really looks more sepia-toned than it did in camera. So yeah. good for them. 
Number three for me, this isn't going to be in a lot of people's top threes, but it's something I've always had fun with. Maybe just because of my close uh, a collection of friends, it's almost a bit of a cult classic within our group, and it's Burn After Reading. Great cat. Clooney, again. <laughs> going to be showing up a couple times, maybe. Brad Pitt, Francis McDormand, John Malkovich, who I honestly... Um, I can't really stand John Malkovich for the most part, but I really like him in that. Tilda Swinton's really great. The Brad Pitt moment, I'm not going to spoil it on the podcast, but maybe top five most shocking moments for me in the cinema. When it happened, I was like, what? No question. (laughs) What just happened? Of course, the hereditary moment is in that top five, but that one was like a wow Sort of similar, aren't they? They were very similar, actually. (laughs) So that's number three for me. I know when you look up rankings, it's like maybe middle of the road, but man, that movie cracks me up. So number three. That was close for me. That one and Raising Arizona are my middle tier beneath. So it's these three, those two. And everything else? And I mean, (laughs) yeah. Okay. So the number two for me is Fargo. Okay. I think that's probably the best movie they've ever made. It's not my most favorite, but I think that's their most precise, interesting, paced, and complete film. And I think the the characters in that movie are great. Look, Frances McDormand is a fantastic actress, and this is when she's really kind of rewarded for that. William H. Macy's really good in that. Steve Buscemi's really good in that film. There's a lot of really nice pieces in there, wood chipper aside. It's still a fantastic movie, even if that isn't in there. That's two for me. That's not my favorite, but mm-hmm. that's, I think, I would argue that's their best film. That's also my number two. Uh, yeah, because it, it flirts the line with comedy and serious thriller. Yeah. I mean, the wood chipper scene, you're like, yeah, hey, I, I think I kind of want to laugh at that, but that's pretty gruesome. I've never seen that before. Yeah. Interesting dialogue that they, when they hone in on a, on a dialect that they really want to tap into much like in this film, Irish gangster lingo, they go all in on it. And that Fargo's like the, no exception to that really well shot. I think it's uh really well acted. Like you said, William H. Macy, who um, I think doesn't get enough credit um, in, in Hollywood for whether it's shameless or boogie nights or, Jurassic Park three that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> he, he's really good too. Peter Stomar, Peter Peter Stomari as oh, yeah. the the other gangster. He's he's excellent. Uh, what what do you think of the the television show? Because I've actually never dabbled into that. Loved the first two seasons. Okay, hard pass on that third season. Okay, um, are they on a fourth one? Is that the Chris it's Rock? Done. One? It's the Chris Rock one. Okay. I haven't tried that one yet. But the okay. first two are great. Okay, yeah, I'll have to check that out. What's your number one? You know this, Blood Simple. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah really influential film for me. Their first film. Yeah. That movie is not some intricate, complex plot. It's pretty simple, but the characters are interesting. And what that film does for me is bring me in without consciously breaking the fourth wall through some narrative. What that film taught me is you can put the audience in a position of knowledge and have all of the other characters revolve around that axis in the world where you are the fulcrum. And what that creates is immense tension because you just want to walk in and say the lighters underneath the fish Mm -hmm. or any of the other 15 just barely missed 
moments in that movie Mm -hmm. that caused the characters to leap to one crazy conclusion after another. And then I've never seen so much tension wrung out of scenes like dragging a shovel on the asphalt Mm -hmm. Um, from the amount of pulls and the pearl handled gun. Yeah. That movie, as far as structure and setup and payoff is perfect. Very noir too, which I think is why why it works really well. You know, the first time I actually uh, heard of Blood Simple was, you remember on the Suspiria episode, we mentioned the Bravo's 100 scariest, well, this was in it. Really? Yeah, of, of all, which didn't make sense, but it was the scene at the end of the film with um, uh, Emmett Walsh at the window with Francis McDormand. And it was that moment that they were highlighting. I was like, what's that film? So when I saw it, I was like, that's not a horror film, but it's, it's really well done moment and then i of course i saw it in your class and i was like oh yeah i really it's a nice starting film for these two these two filmmakers you know where sam art williams goes from that film mm. to write the fresh prince of bel-air mm, oh wow how about that that's awesome there you go i'm dying to hear your number one blood simple was on the outside looking in uh, with with a few others that maybe i do like the coen brothers a little bit more than you but it depends on you know what their what their aim is Number one for me, I, and I guess my top three is I, I like to have fun with their films and when they're kind of playing around with genre tropes. So this film's kind of a gangster movie, and it's more of just people being victims of circumstance. And uh, it's The Big Lebowski. I'm a huge Jeff Bridges fan. So seeing him in a role that I've never seen him play before uh, and just totally eating the scenery. And, and, and same with John Goodman and Steve Buscemi. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I'm not I'm not a Julianne Moore fan either. Was, this is just a confession of all the actors that I just don't like on film, <laughs> but th- they work for me in that one. And it's it is kind of a gangster, uh, mistaken identity kind of thing. And how much more? How many more mistakes can these characters keep making throughout the film? And it just comes to a head to me at the end when I when I totally understand their humor in a nutshell. And it's when they're throw in Steve Buscemi, Donnie's ashes out to the, out to the sea. And John Goodman starts talking about, as you took so many other young men at Quezon and, 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 and Vietnam and the dude's just like, what is he talking about? And then he releases the ashes and they just blow back into him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, what the hell was all that shit about Vietnam? Everything's a travesty with you. That, like that's the film in a nutshell. You, you can't take it too seriously. And these characters aren't either. And it's one that you just have fun with. And I think that's the space I like the Coen brothers in is films that you can still have a good time while watching. That was my top three. I like your list. I wanted a true grit remake. Oh, yay or nay. I kind of had forgotten that they, they had done that one. And I do remember rather enjoying that one. No, I think it's well done. Mm -hmm. I don't buy Matt Damon in the Glenn Campbell role. Oh God, as LaBeef. As LaBeef. He's pretty wooden in that. Yeah. But no, I think for mm-hmm. way out of genre that they're comfortable and they did a fine job. It's just, that's such a tough film to remake. Mm-hmm. Like there's, I don't have a problem with it. Matter yeah. of fact, I own the movie poster to it. You do. That's right. I do. Mm-hmm. But um, I almost didn't even include that mm-hmm. just because the other one is so quintessential to the John Wayne oh, yeah. mythos. So no, that's a fine film. Okay. I have no problems with True Grit remake. I just... I, I didn't allow myself to consider that as a Coen Brothers movie, even though it is just because 
it remakes are not them. I don't know. That just it didn't it doesn't work for me. That's fair. And then another one that kind of came up that I actually haven't seen, A Serious Man. I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, so um I have some work to do to kind of complete the the filmography, but or not. Yeah, or not, yeah. We'll get to that in the nightcap because there are some definite misses, which oh. is interesting because some of them do turn out really well, and then some are just like kind of half-baked efforts, and I kind of wonder where Ah, maybe their heart wasn't in it. It, it on paper or in conversation. It sounded good, but then when they went to do it, and yeah, maybe because that's not the only remake they did. The other one's the Lady Killers, and that's going to show up on my list. I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, excellent, Matt. Cheers. I, I love I love yours. So, cheers, was, Jesse. Blood Simple, Fargo, and um, Oh Brother. Oh Brother. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's there's a cast to visit, and then we'll, we'll find another one in there. I do want to do No Country for Old Men because I do like that one. And I know you don't. So, no, do not. That could be an interesting kind of thing to, to, to dissect. So yeah, let's do Miller's Crossing today and let's get to our happy hour time and break this thing down. Talking about ethics. You know I'm a sporting man. I like to lay the occasional bet, <laughs> but I ain't that sporting. When I fix a fight, say I uh, pay a three to one favor to throw a goddamn fight. I figure I got the right to expect that fight to go off at three to one. But every time I lay in bed with a son of a bitch, Bernie Birnbaum, before I know it, the odds is even up. Or worse, I'm betting on the short money. The sheeny knows I like short things. He's selling the information. I fixed the fight. Out of town money goes pouring in. The odds go straight to hell. I don't know who's selling to it. Maybe the Los Angeles combine. I don't know. The point is, Bernie ain't satisfied with the honest dollar he can make off the pick. Okay, Matt, I'm going to need help on on this one here because there's a lot of moving pieces and I'm still not sure if I fully understand what's going on in this movie. Well, let's just kind of start at the beginning here. So our opening scene, we are introduced to Johnny Casper, played by uh, Joe Polito, who I have always, this is going to be hilarious. I don't know if you've seen this, but he, to me, he's the bad guy in Blank Man with Damon Wayans. Oh my gosh, you're right. That was another one of the 50 cent rentals that I rented to death. I love that movie. It's hilarious. It is hilarious. I loved it too. So yeah, I always uh, associate him with that, but... What's that line? Slap me around and call me Susan? <laughs> so funny. I loved that movie too. It is good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got to come back to the superhero, the 90s superhero, because it, that's not Batman. Because you had the Shadow, the Phantom. Mystery Men. Mystery Men, Dark Man. Speaking of William H. Macy. There you go. So Yeah, that'd yep. be fun. We'll come back to that. But Johnny Casper's, you know, another uh, mob boss here. And it looks like they're kind of vying. He's vying for power with with Leo O'Bannon, played by Albert Finney. I forgot Albert Finney was in this movie. And I forgot, actually, how much I like Albert Finney on on screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Two weeks in a row. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. For those of you looking for some film viewing out there this holiday season, it's not a holiday movie, but there's downtime to watch movies, I guess. Albert Finney made a sci-fi film in the late 80s when Michael Crichton was still trying to make it as like a director, and it's called Looker. It's a pretty, pretty good movie, and mm-hmm. I know no one's seen it because I never hear anybody talk about it, but if you want something off the beaten path that's worth your time, yeah, check out Looker. That's worth it. So Tom Tom Reagan, played by Gabriel Byrne, is kind of like the lieutenant, uh, the right-hand man to, to Leo, but there's kind of this jostling of power. And the one thing I kind of take away from this sequence is they're kind of doing the Godfather here, aren't they, Matt? Is exactly what I was going to say. Isn't this the opening of the Godfather? 
Two things came up in this for me. Nope. We can get to what the general premise is in just a minute. Okay. But it's the Godfather and heavy exposition dump in a less interesting way, a la Tarantino before Tarantino. Mm-hmm. That is, it's funny that you faded out before it even finished because he goes on for another two minutes. <laughs> he does, yeah. And it's about ethics. And you brought it up so well last week. Okay. And this movie really suffers from this. And it is the rapid introduction of character names with no visual marker to bookmark it in your mind. And so you are loaded with who is Bernie Birnbaum and who is, and, and names are flying around all over the place. Here's the premise. Okay. John Polito, who I find really tough to deal with in this film, mm. not because he's a bad actor, but kind of as a Casper is essentially going to O'Bannon to ask that he will deal with Birnbaum. Mm hmm. But the reason he has to go to O'Bannon is O'Bannon is with the twist, who is the girl that is Birnbaum's sister. So there is that reluctance for O'Bannon to allow this violent act to occur in the world of gambling. Now, as much as this movie should be about gambling, mm -hmm. it mostly isn't. No. Frankly, I don't know what the fuck this movie is about. Well, what were they gambling? Were they were they betting on boxing? I thought it was dog races. Boxing. <laughs> that shows you kind of how confused I was. I was. Yep. Okay. So yeah. So yeah, that's the general principle of the plot. Albert Finney can act on this because he's in a romantic fling with Verna, right? Yep. Marsha Gay Harden. Who's pretty good in this film. Let's talk about Tom for a minute. Gabriel Byrne. An interesting, very interesting actor. Is Gabriel Byrne a little Claude Rainsy? <laughs> Yeah, but I think he, in much the same way that Claude Rains had some really excellent films, so mm -hmm. does Gabriel Byrne. Look, The Usual Suspects obviously comes to mind. We both like Hereditary. Mm -hmm. There was a show that he did, I think it was on Showtime, called In Treatment. Yeah, I think it was HBO. That was fantastic, mm -hmm. at least the first season. It got a little bit lost in itself, but the first season was amazing. La Femme Nikita, I think that's one he did with... Um, Bridget Fonda, he's got himself a nice filmography. Gabriel Byrne shows up from time to time and does a pretty good job. The role that he's cast in I like this, how you said that, shows up from time to time. Right? I mean, I bet if you pulled up his filmography, you'd be like, oh, this, 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 very Claude Rains-like, with like the three or four big ones. Stigmata? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, Usual Suspects, mm -hmm. not to play Casablanca, but in that sort of space with Claude Rains, Invisible Man, like there's sure. a space where he's good. Mm-hmm. I think he's capable, but I think he's capable in an understated way. And if you are going to be, I think what Tom is supposed to be in this film for O'Bannon, which is the angler, see the play, you cannot be that understated. If you aren't going to express your angling deception or your angling identification superpowers verbally. And this is frustrating for me right now. I just want to lay this out. Yeah, sure. In this scene that is a huge exposition dump, literally talking heads in a room where nothing is going on, we do not get a single syllable uttered until the last 30 seconds from Tom. And it's about three lines. We watch him jingle his drink. He's drinking the whole film. And he's almost just there on the wall doing nothing. Okay, that plays if that's the kind of consistent way he is in the film. But that's not the way he is the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. Wildly uneven character. I think people are probably like, uh-oh, I can tell where Matt's going with this film. You're right. <laughs> Everyone that's like there, you're right. That's where I'm going with this film. Um, 
No, I'm, I'm with you there. It is a huge exposition jump. You almost need a notepad to kind of jot the names down of uh, 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 Bernie Burnbaum and, and Mink and all these names just being tossed around. And Oh, my God, the Mink character. I can't wait to do that one. Yeah, I, I can't. Uh, it's, it's just hard to kind of encapsulate it. And what I mentioned last week was the Godfather's opening sequence kind of does the same thing, but everyone's there at the wedding too. Right. It's a nice uh, setting to establish the players that are going to be operating in this film versus in a conversation piece. And you're not supposed to do that either. Show, don't tell. Right. So they're telling, 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 telling. Uh, There's a gravity mm-hmm. to the opening sequence in The Godfather that this movie sorely misses. I feel like this is the city councilman talking to head of the head, and it's not, they're bigger than this, but it feels like the city councilman angling with the PTA over who's going to run, run the homeowners association. Like it feels so small time. Yeah. That's just how I feel. And partly it's the casting. Albert Fenney is a really good actor. Mm-hmm. This Polito guy is not. Okay. And I think the casting in this film is also terrible. Terrible. There's no way Marsha Gay Harden is ever the gangster's mole. And I hated this role hardened in Mystic River for her too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hated the same role, just like born again hard in Mystic River. Mm-hmm. As much as I love her in The Mist, it's it's really not a good casting clan for me. Even John Turturro? I love a lot of John Turturro's work. Yeah. In this, he's one of the characters that I find interesting because he actually sticks out. He doesn't just blend into the landscape of just the wash of general nefaria and Irish slash Italian gangland. He does tend to stick out. His screen time is pretty limited though. Mm-hmm. Okay. That that's the first three minutes. Yeah. Okay. So then what throws a wrench into this whole cog machine of this plot is Leo or not Leo, Tom yeah. Gabriel Byrne is also having a fling with Marsha Gay Harden. So they're, they're having a thing. So you're like, Hmm, interesting. Like I guess this would be the conflict of, of the film. What's going to happen when mob boss finds out that Lieutenant is skeeving on his girl too. She's in the next room when he comes to say, Hey, I don't know where she's at. And he's like, why are you look, if you're looking for a four in the morning, what makes you think she's such a good girl? I mean, she's a sex worker working in a brothel for God's sake. So, uh, uh, this I, doesn't I, make sense to me. Okay, go ahead. I don't. This is what I don't understand. Okay. After they have, so Gabriel Byrne wakes up, can't find his hat. He's got the hair of the dog, and him losing his hat and it blowing in the wind in a very Coen Brothers esque slow motion scene where the hat is blowing down a path with leaves, and none of the leaves are blowing in conjunction with it off the ground. What's heavier, Jesse, a hat or leaves? hat <laughs> how is the hat moving and the leaves aren't i know i'm being petty but if you're going to take that time to showcase this hat being blown in some really grand elaborate directorial moment that seems to have significance that is also sort of set up with him going to get his hat from her place mm-hmm. it should play it doesn't it has nothing to do with the film so he gets this is what i don't understand though that's not the point he goes to this brothel I guess, or wherever this is, or her place, or wherever the hell that is. Albert Finney's going to show up a couple minutes later. Mm-hmm. And he's going, and then John Turturro's going to show up a couple minutes later in another very similar room. It starts to be questionable to me. Are we in Gabriel Byrne's apartment? Are we in the brothel? Oh, I Who gets to go where? Where are we in these scenes in this film? Okay, so we have to be in Gabriel Byrne's apartment because if it was 
Verna's apartment, shit would hit the fan like right here, right? I guess. But I kind of had the same notion. Why is he knocking to get into his own apartment, Jesse? Yeah, exactly. Because that's what I thought too. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Why would he knock to get in? That makes no sense at all. I feel like he went to pick her up. But then we're not shown the scene where the, he goes to his apartment because I was confused. I was confused as well. Okay, so I'm glad you said that because I had talked myself out of that. But now that you just said the same thing, John Turturro is sitting in the chair that we see in that apartment that Albert Finney sits in later. Mm-hmm. So that is his That is his apartment. Yep. Why does Verna have access to his apartment and he knocks on the door unless there's some superior and anterior relation? Like this already is so broken. No, like he would, it wouldn't be his apartment. It has to be another location. You know what I mean? Well, then they need to do a better job of delineate, delineating where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Spatial and uh, the the exposition dump. Those are those are two things. I'd go back and rewatch it to deter, but there's no way in hell I'm rewatching this movie. I yeah. just, there's no way. <laughs> um, there's many other films to watch. Sure. We have a problem here. <laughs> where are we? Mm-hmm. Who lives where? So we have a mass introduction of lots and lots of new characters immediately right off the bat in the first five minutes of the story. And then we are already confusing our audience in where the setting is. And I'm sure there's some Coen brothers fans out there that say, Oh, those guys are idiots. No, I'm not. I'm not an idiot. Like I haven't seen this movie in 10 years. I'm not like, I don't care enough to even go want to go back and figure it out. That's another problem. Mm -hmm. I'm so disinterested already. Yeah. I'm drowning in quicksand. (laughs) slowly and the more i struggle to try to stay afloat i should just let myself go down and like just get it over with it's the opening 10 minutes of the movie (laughs) so okay here's another one for you let's just let's just kind of let's talk this one out too because i've ever i've forgotten already wait so what did we just what did we decide there it's tom's apartment okay that's Uh, tom's apartment and albert finney goes to visit him there but so there's a missing scene then of them leaving wherever he picked her up from to go to that apartment or he's knocking on his own apartment, which is strange. Yeah. Both are strange. Yeah. Both are strange. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, it's like in, um, Oh, when, what did I miss? It's like in Halloween. I think I mentioned this in that episode. There's a missing scene there. Do you remember when Loomis, uh, sees the state vehicle down the street yeah. and then it makes it look like it's like 20 feet in front of him mm-hmm. when it's like, way down the street, there's a missing scene showing the spatial relationship, which is important. I mean, the way you move the camera in a movie is important. Otherwise you, you lose spatial reference. Wait, you mean framing the image is important? It is important. Yeah. That's weird. Okay. I hadn't thought about it. I say this too, because (laughs) there's, uh, I still haven't finished it yet, Matt, because this probably uh, tells you how, how this is going, but the haunting of Bly Manor, uh, there's a, in the opening scene, there's a sequence where the, the governess is going to the, the mansion and she's being driven and the camera work, you're not supposed to break up the 180 degree plane, but the way that they're showing it, and maybe they're just trying to make it so it's a supernatural or whatever. Uh, it's like showing her from one side and then they're on like, and then it's showing him from the opposite side of the car, looking the same direction the camera can't go that way. It has to stay on the same side yeah. and it has to kind of go this way, not this way. Yeah. Like that's, that's a rule. You're not supposed to do that. There are exceptions to the rule, of course, but spatial reference in film is important because we're not present in the scene. Um, if this was a stage play, 
it would be much more clear. We'd be able to kind of visualize what was going on. But on film, there are rules to how you position and move the camera. So I'm fine with what you just said. That's that is a rule. <clears throat> yeah. This guy in the alleyway that the little boy uh, takes his oh, his wig is this. This is a member of. I was trying to remember like how this was important to to to, to the to the plot of the film. Maybe you can do some research. O'Bannon's. Um, Hitman. He's either with O'Bannon or Casper. Mm. Instead of letting the audience in on who that is, instead we get the Coen brothers doing Steven Spielberg with the cute little kid. Mm -hmm. And that is this kid, this newsy, I guess, in the alley looking at this corpse, fascinated by this man's toupee to then only take it and run away. I think this is one of Casper's men, but I have to say this, and I mean it, I don't care, and it doesn't matter. It, it, it really doesn't. That has nothing to do with the rest of this ill-contrived plot. That's just as you're watching a dog watch a boy look at a corpse as be, before he steals his toupee. Maybe that should matter. It doesn't. Because what the, the conflict to me here is at the beginning of this this film is, when is Leo going to find out about the affair that Verna's having with Tom. To me, that's the story. It's less what Casper's doing. No, that is the story. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. It's a soured love triangle when your your hitman, your you, your lieutenant, your Mister Fix It, is with your woman. And how long can you keep that hidden? And then what happens when he finds out? That's the story. That's what this movie is. And that wrapped inside a mafia movie. Um. There's a lot of ways mafia movies can go. I'm not sure Soured Love Triangle is my my preferred choice. Well, there's another love triangle at play here. Oh, Tom, what's the rumpus? Mink. See, you got your hat back. Yeah, whatever. Not a thing, Tom. Look, if it ain't my business, I got not a thing to say. Listen, Bernie wants to see what's important. Yeah, well, I'm right here. I'm not made of glass. Yeah, but he's nervous walking around in public, Tom. He's the right guy, but he's very nervous. I mean, who wouldn't be? Look, I mean, the spot he's in, who wouldn't be? He asked me to ask you to ask Leo to take care of him. You know, putting a good word with Leo. Leo listens to you. Not that Leo wouldn't help the schmata anyway. A guy like Bernie is squared. You like the schmata, a straight shooter like him. I don't get it, Mike. Who wants to get it? It's as plain as a nose on your face. I thought you were already dancing, sick of Yeah, Tom, that's right, but a guy could have more than one friend, can he? I mean, not that I want the dance to know about it, but a square G like the Shimada is the right guy, Tom. He's a square shooter. I know he's got a mixed reputation, but for a sheen, he's got a lot of good qualities. What's going on between you and Ben? Nothing, Tom. We're just friends, you know, amigos. You're a fickle boy, Mink. If any dame finds out that you got another amigo, well, I don't pay him for the understand it, Tom. Find out? How's he going to find out? Damn it, Tom. You and me ain't even been talking. Jesus, Tom, damn it. Jesus. Did you get your notepad out? Because there's a few more things going on. First of all, I, I, I love Steve Buscemi. He's, he's just really good at playing neurotic, crazy. And amen to him for, for remembering all those lines and spouting them out like that because I could never do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, he's good for the two scenes that he's in, one of them being a corpse. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so... But here's what's important. Mink, that character's name is Mink. Yeah. He is a crucial piece in this film. And this is it. It is. Not only are you bombarded with a bunch of other names, some familiar, some not, but then it's delivered in a 20s-era slang version of dialect that only muddies the waters even more. Look, man, here's the truth. You can set a film in any time you want, but unless you're going to do vampires or 
um, cowboys versus aliens or something that is so high concept that anyone can see through it. If you get lost in the in your own setting, which by the way, we have already said they didn't do a good job of establishing where that starts and stops, the movie becomes secondary to the set pieces that you're looking at. And in this film, it's we are in love with our character design and the artistic impressionations or, or impersonations, impressions in 1920s era, wherever the hell we are in New York, Chicago, who even cares? And they forget to tell a story. And we've already said it's a B minus story anyway. Mm-hmm. We're really in the mud now. You said something really interesting about the characters and caricatures and kind of what they tapped into in the store or the the setting is kind of secondary. That's kind of what you just said. That's them in a nutshell. I mean, they fall in love with these characters that they write, whether that be Barton Fink or the the dude or Marge and and, and Fargo or any of the characters in Burn After Reading. Um, it, Shakur. Yeah, I think it. Uh, oh, Shakur. Anton Shakur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh what did I call him? Shakur? Shakur. You're Tupac. Clo- you're close. Tupac Shakur. <laughs> okay, no, um, uh, I think that it's something that they're really good at, but then when the characters are moderately interesting in this and the settings moderately interesting. I told you on the Ghost Story episode, I don't have this love affair with the 1920s that a lot of filmmakers and people have romanticized, whether that's The Great Gatsby or, or, or whatever. The Untouchables. Exceptions to the rule. I would never make a movie during this time period, um, just because. And then I just don't like the, the the era either. So you haven't gotten me on board with the setting. You haven't gotten me on board with these characters, and I'm confused at the same time. I wonder I, are they are they trying to do that? Are they trying to confuse us to show that since Gabriel Byrne's character Tom can remember it all, that he's a little bit smarter than your average duck? Maybe that's giving them too much credit, but that is his unique trait this ability to identify the plays and get ahead of them. If it was chess, he's one move ahead of you. I just don't see where that actually comes to fruition at any point in the film. I feel he's more lucky than he is strategic. Sure. Oh, of course. That's troubling Mm -hmm. because I don't care about lucky in a film unless the movie's about luck. This isn't. Mm -hmm. This movie's about strategy. I don't know, Jesse. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I usually don't feel kind of this rattled trying to remember the plot, but it is confusing. If you watch this once and you got it, I want to meet you. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> it's... And you shouldn't have to have a notepad. Like, even... even Okay, like, exceptions to Game the... Game of Thrones. Exceptions to the rule. Christopher Nolan's types of films te- technically leave me in a bit of the same space, but it, he makes me want to go back and rewatch them so I can... Get more piece to the puzzle. Well said. This I don't feel that if that makes sense. So, did you feel we've made we're maybe twenty five minutes in now? Did you feel the weight of this film by the time he finished this conversation with Bushimi? Like the the sum total of the work it's going to take to remember and get through this. Well, let me ask you this, Matt: When you see a gangster mob mafia movie like this, what do you want from that? I want to know what the crime is. I want to know who the bad guy is. I want to know who the girl is. And I want to know who's going to try to screw who. It's that simple. And you want some mob war. Violence. Sequence. Yeah, violence. That, that, that That's the thing. And we get some of that. But like, not now. Like, our opening scene should really set the tone. And if we're setting the tone with just drawn out kind of dialogue that's already not making sense, that's, that's a bad sign. Not to say that the 
the movie is slow at times, but that's where your characters can come in and kind of and kind of lift that for you. So let me give you something. I want you to compare this to Ghostbusters for a minute. Okay. Let's talk about beats and let's talk about the introduction to our characters in the opening beats. Now, Ghostbusters is almost a perfect screenplay. I don't know why I'm not saying that it is. I'm probably because there's something in there that may be off a little bit, but if it's not perfect, it's I'm, it's barely not perfect. I've convinced myself it might be the one of the best top three best written movies of all time. Okay, so when we go to the opening, which is an ensemble piece, which this also becomes to a certain degree. That's This is a bit more of a character study. That's more kind of an action thing. Let me do this for you. Real, I'll do it for you real quick. I'll just spew it for you. So Ghostbusters, like... The opening sequence is the scene with the librarian. The yep. opening sequence sets up the world that you're going to be playing around in from beginning to end. Your your fellow scene introduces your protagonists and then how they are. One's a playboy, one's a believer, and one's a neurotic, uh, like, just brainiac egghead. Mm-hmm. How these three are going to work together in that environment is the opening 10 minutes of Ghostbusters. And they're not good at their job, is why I like that that movie. Right. These are people that have ambitions to solve the paranormal threats in New York, but they're at be, at the beginning they're not good at it, and so they're flawed. They're interesting. They're getting kicked off the university. They have to take out. You sound a, like a screenwriter right now. Do I? Good for you. And in this one, we set up our world. Okay, Irish gangsters. I'm on board. I haven't seen a lot of Irish gangster films. Who are the players? Oh, I don't know. There's about ten of them, and the ones that are important to the conflict aren't in the room. We're talking Verna. We're talking Mink. We're talking uh, Bernie Bernie Bomb The Dane. And the, and the Dane. He's actually in the room on the couch. See, here's the other thing, too. It's Irish and Italian. The Polito represents the, the Italian faction, and O'Bannon represents the Irish faction. Meanwhile, neither of them are the main character in the film. So what you just said, they're really bad at their jobs, which you're going to create conflict and humor. We have a guy who is sitting in the back, who does nothing except twirl his bourbon in his rocks glass and share kind of a dirty look with Dane. So you have a passive protagonist in their opening, but you have to show that passive, that passiveness as a way they are moving themselves to the quest and accomplishing the task before them. This is not that if he wants to be quiet and clandestine because he's trying to hide secrets, then I get that too. And maybe the story is someone found out his secrets and he's, nope, that's not the film. And I want people to understand like, oh, they just don't know. They're just the Coen brothers. Bullshit. Go, go watch the opening of The Big Lebowski. When he walks into the to the grocery store and he's looking for some half and half for his white Russians, with no dialogue, you understand that character instantly yep. with what he's wearing, with how he's dressed, with how he starts drinking the half and half without paying for it. You get that character instantly. I don't I don't get these people with a vibe. It has to be told to me through dialogue. Okay, so one of the tricks with mafia movies is the attire that they wear. We spoke about that last week with the untouchables. They all basically are dressed to the nines, Natalie attired in very, very fine suits. There's not a lot of differentiation in characters based on the way they look. So with what you just said, you recognize right away, look at this guy. He's got on the poncho. Like he looks like a surfer, whatever that is, right? They all look alike. So that's already off the table. And that's fair because that's the world. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect someone to have a surfboard and board shorts. Like that doesn't, that's ridiculous. 
right? So you can't use that. So then you have to use something that is character defining and Gabriel Byrne's depiction of Tom is passive and quiet. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible opening for this character. Yeah. Do you you think, does he improve as the film goes on? Okay, so we're going to get to it, I imagine. There's a moment later with Verna. Is that her name, Verna? Yeah. Where... It literally is his shining moment to do his pe- his best impersonation of Walter Neff from Double Indemnity. The banter goes back and forth like tennis. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say 55. Why don't you get off your motorcycle and give me a ticket? Like that back and forth, back and forth with her. And that's the only time in the film he does that. The rest of the movie then moves back to understated, calm, precise, pedantic, Boy, the guy's wildly can, inconsistent. Boy, the guy can sure take a punch, though. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so let's get to that. How many times did he like walk out of a door and then was just greeted with like a right hook? Pretty much the whole film. The whole film. I don't even know where we left off in the plot. What was the last? We were. Well, let's catch. Let's catch up here. Let's kind of get to the the middle and then the crux conflict. So, Casper's boys are going to go do a hit on Leo because no one's playing ball and agreeing and they're trying to seduce Gabriel Byrne to the dark side and get him to, to, to play ball with them. And he's not biting either. So like, well, we're just going to go kill Albert Finney. So then um, there's this sequence. Maybe we should have a camera in this room so they they could see you just like <laughs> shaking your head. It's such a shameless ripoff of The Godfather. So what did you what do you did you think? I I thought this sequence was humorous to, to an extent that you know Albert Finney, this elderly gentleman, is going to throw his Tommy gun out the window and essentially parkours outside of his house to kill the guy, and then as his house burns, he's just kind of almost invincible down the street. It's almost like no one can hit anything with these guns as he kind of puts one in this jalopy as it crashes and burns. I, that's the humor aspect of the Coen brothers when almost ridiculous things happen outside of the norm of the genre. You know what I mean? Like that, it, it's a funny scene seeing someone in their night robe with the Tommy gun shooting at this thing in the middle of a, like a suburban neighborhood. And I was like, oh, what do other people think of this, this gunfire? That's what they're, I think they're pretty good at. That's one of their strengths. I would say is taking that element that doesn't quite belong there and and executing it that way. Violence through humor? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. Um, <clears throat> so this is really the first hard action moment in the film, in the movie that is a gangster film that you said we're waiting for the big mafia shootout. I'm just going to go back to the same thing. Neither one or none of the characters in the scene that are trying to kill each other are the active lead in this movie. Mm -hmm. So you're watching the side piece characters (laughs) engage in finally some violence. There's the big moment where Albert Finney in the street, guns down, the hitman in his bedroom with about 6,000 rounds in the back, and we just watch him take bullet, 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 and then he shoots himself in the feet, and then he shoots the chandelier, and then he literally takes the gun and shoots it in a circle like it's almost marking time. So I get the humor element Mm -hmm. in that. Like, Mm -hmm. he's still shooting me. Like, it's still a minute. He's still shooting me. And then we get the gun 
fight where the car's driving and Albert Finney's shooting the car and it crashes. And, and what is the sum total of all of that? Yeah, it's just that, hey, you tried, but you failed. So. And was there any question prior to this that Leo O'Bannon yeah. was a bad dude? No. So what are we doing? I'm just hanging my hat on it because I like this sequence regardless of how much it just kind of, it doesn't kind of move things along. It's just a scene. And it's hard to have just scenes taking up time. But for the other 40 minutes of the movie leading up to this, I'm just, I'm waiting for something to happen. And something did happen. And it happens to be something that the Coens are pretty good at doing. So at this point, though, when Casper dispatches these hitmen to kill O'Bannon, why? Mm -hmm. Why did he do that? Why are they after O'Bannon at this moment? Or the girl? So that they can get the green light to kill uh, Barnbaum, because if they were willing to kill O'Bannon, they would just go kill Barnbaum. Anyway, like, why are we doing this? Yeah, I don't know. And I mostly because I at this point I was done. I just was like, please hurry, tuning out. Yeah, out, way out. Here's the thing though about this film. Like I said, quicksand. Yeah. In quicksand, you do struggle, and there are some moments where you're able to buoy yourself up enough to where there's a hope that maybe someone's going to throw you a stick or you can find a vine and pull yourself out movie-wise. This is just interesting enough to bait me into keeping my eyes on for a next little bit of time. And this movie does keep doing that. Is the moment coming up now one of those where he confesses to her, is like, hey, I'm with her? Okay, so yeah, this is a big moment. Okay. This is his best character moment. So are you going to play the sound? No. Oh, okay. You're <laughs> talk about I don't have sound for <laughs> Okay. So Tom, Gabriel Byrne, goes to Leo, Albert Finney, and confesses, hey, I'm with Verna too. To which, to which hang on a second, Matt, on that. Mm-hmm. To which he responds, uh, oh, he reacts any way anyone would in that situation. I'm going to beat your ass. Yeah. So yeah. in a comically... Kind of way he punches him through the dregs of the army that he's built up outside the club uh, onto the steps. And 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 Gabriel Byrne can't fight back because it's loaded with his henchmen on either side of him. So yeah. he's just got to take it. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's great at taking a punch because if not, it's going to just be a shootout at this point. Right. And, and he, he knows. Like, oh, I'm not going to strike my friend. I mean, this is essentially my father figure, too, mm-hmm. in the mob world. That's, that's essentially what that would be. So now he's out. He's out of the this family, this this group. So where does he immediately go? Is to Casper. So and then Casper's like, okay, you can pl- you can play with me, but you got to kill Be- Bernie Bombom. <laughs> Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. Exactly. See what I'm getting at? Again, here we are. The heavy Italian singing in the shootout is very reminiscent. The opening scene is very reminiscent, and this trope is also reminiscent. And again, we talked about this last week. I don't mind if you want to pay homage to those before you for something. Good, do it. Yeah. I will say this. Okay. Once he goes to visit Casper, mm-hmm. it does clear up a little bit. Like you can see that he's a man without any protection, no job. His he's back's, trying his back's against the wall. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to find some support. So hat in hand, he goes back to Casper, right? This is the second time. Mm-hmm. To take the deal that Casper had offered him prior to this moment earlier in the film, which also launched into another fist fight with him and Danny Aiello, which is actually, or is that his name? No, uh, Mike Starr. I always get him and Danny Aiello mixed up. They do look so, right? it, it does look like him, yeah. Mike Starr from, I associate him with Dumb and Dumber. Right, <laughs> right. Big, strong, bulky, Hurley, you know, 
And so what's weird about that scene, though, is he bashes him in the face with a chair, and Mike Starr says, hey, man, like what? Again. And brings in Tic Tac, who's about 150 years old, and, man, he tunes up Gabriel Byrne like a boxer punching a cheerleader from some middle school dance squad. It's It's ridiculous. Those are the moments that work for me because it is the Coens toying with humor and we're not going to let the big guy and he's going to act like a wimp or act like a little girl and back out. And he's like, and then he brings this little, it reminded me of, so Matt's a Spider-Man guy. It reminded yeah. me of the enforcers. So this is him punching the <laughs> fancy <ox>. Dan, <laughs> and here comes in fancy Dan to beat, beat his ass. So down. good. Uh, but th- those work for me because the rest isn't working for me because I'm so confused in my, and my head's hurting at this point. Okay. Uh, to be fair, okay. when he cracks him in the Mike star in the face with the chair, I'm like, yeah. Oh, that's that I did chuckle a bit. So we're back to time two with Casper to try to find some place where I'll have backup. And it's going to come to what the title of the film is Miller's crossing. But before we go, go to Miller's crossing, Matt, these film, this is set during prohibition, the 1920s, mm-hmm. alcohol's illegal. So we've made a sting on a racket and I've found a bottle for us. So mm. we're going to have a first on rice smile films. We're going to have a, a mid episode pour from a new bottle. Oh, this is bell mead, sour mash whiskey. I oh. just bought it today, Nice, but I was like, we could wait, but I was like, ah, let's just whip it out during the middle of the episode. So, so it's <laughs> not in a Jeffrey Tubin kind of way, though. Yeah, so the Amador's gone, and we're moving on to this. Oh, great, Jesse. There you go. Awesome. Let's see if that helps the back half of this film. Oh, wow. That I told, I told, apple. Yeah, I told you I'm a big fan of sour mashes. Oh, man. Yeah, that's smooth. That is terrific. Let me see this for a minute. What? Now, this is a perfect time to talk about this sequence because it's it's coming up, but I, I this is the best bit of trivia from this film, and I... Great choice. That's no, great bourbon. Excellent. Thank you. There's a scene coming up where there's a cameo by one director, Sam Raimi, as a gun uh, G-man... Uh, who th- th- he's in the shootout. Do you remember he has revolvers and he's kind of shooting and then they blow him away? Mm. Sam Raimi. How about that? Sam oh, Ra- yeah, that, that's right. Sam Raimi. Outside in the, in the street. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sam Raimi and the Cohen brothers are actually really good friends and they've adopted a lot of, there's a scene coming up where I was just like, Sam Raimi may have just directed that because it's straight Evil Dead camera work in that scene where the guy's, ah! Oh, Mm. In that sequence, mm-hmm. which I have a clip for because that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Matt, this is totally insane. So back in the 80s when the Coens are trying to make it in Hollywood and Sam Raimi, they all lived together. So this is who lived in the house. Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, Scott Spiegel, Joel and Ethan Cohen, Francis McDormand, Kathy Bates, and Holly Hunter oh in gosh. one house. Wow. Yeah. The amount of... Talent. Talent that came out of that as they're, all of them trying to make it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're making Evil Dead at that point, but that's like such a B-movie. Crazy, huh? That is crazy. So they, they've kind of, uh, I, I didn't even know this too. Bruce Campbell's in Bar, uh, Hudsucker Proxy and Sam Raimi co-wrote that movie with the Coens actually. So there's there's kind of a nice famili- familial thing there. They're all they're all really good friends and you would, you would never know that because they make... Two totally different types of film. Was it Ethan or Joel that ended up marrying Francis McDormand? Uh, Joel. Joel. Mm -hmm. And then Holly Hunter has had numerous appearances. In the Cohen. In the Cohen films. 
That's crazy. And, I didn't know that. And, wow, what an amazing living environment that would that, be. That, that, that could have been fun. How creative would that have house have been? That or they were just, just getting high 24-7. Yeah. In an alternative universe, there's a universe where, I don't know if you'd like this, but the Coen brothers are directing Spider-Man and Sam Raimi's directing No Country for Old Men, which I might want to see. Like, I'd pay a lot of money to see that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Why, yes. Interesting. Very interesting. Good get. Because No, because when he showed up, on, I was like, I know who that is. Mm-hmm. Why is he in the movie? So I went I did a deep dive, and I discovered all of that. How about that? It was a rabbit hole. Wow. So we're going to Miller's Crossing. We have Bernie Bomb Bomb, John Turturro, which is the second time we've seen him in the film. And the the, the ploy here is uh, with Casper, prove your loyalty to us. We'll give you a job. We'll take care of you. But you got to take care of this guy who the whole film's been about since the opening sequence. So that is so simple. Mm-hmm. The triangle has soured. You've lost your position of employment. You're trying to find another one to not only save your skin, but provide for yourself. And in order to do so, my enemy is my friend, and I have to prove my worth. This is such a simple story. And, and actually, as much as I said, maybe I don't like that, now I'm a little interested. Because mm-hmm. now I have to pal up with this Italian faction of the mafia to go against the Irish faction of the mafia over the girl that is the sister to the guy that both of these two factions have issues with who is involved in gambling. That works. That all sounds good. That works. Yeah. So we get this pivotal moment here in the film. Look at your heart. I'm praying to you. 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 Look at your heart. Look at your heart. Look at your heart. So because the film can't end here, because it would be the end of the movie, Tom doesn't shoot Bernie. Bernie. Yeah. Bomb bomb. Bomb bomb, whatever. Bon bomb. Burn burn bomb. Burn bomb. They say it so fast in the thing, it sounds like bomb bomb. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't shoot him, and instead he grants him mercy. It's a mercy, it's a mercy, mercy moment here. Look, I'm gonna spare your life, but you're you're dead. You don't live here anymore. You got to get out of here. Get as far away as you can. I'm granting you that. I'm granting you your life right here. It says a lot about Tom's character. He might be a ruthless, cold-blooded bastard who works for the Irish mob, but he's not going to just cold execute someone here just to kind of save his own skin. It does say a lot about who he really is, but here's where it gets mega complicated. So (laughs) take your notepads out. Mm Bernie? Mm-hmm. Yes. Leaves. Turturro. But comes back. Yep. In a scene we don't see, he kills Steve Buscemi. Yep. Mink. Who's his boyfriend. Yes. Who's his boy? And he's uh, the other guy's boyfriend. Polito's lieutenant. Yep. Dane. Yeah, Dane. <clears throat> and goes and puts the body where he should be. Okay, so we don't we off screen. Yeah, off screen. We don't see it. That's, that's, that's a huge, huge problem. 
only I guess to have the surprise being that when Dane takes him back, look, look, you didn't kill that guy out there. We're gonna go back out to Miller's Crossing. We're gonna make you show us the body, and if not, I'm gonna kill you. And Gabriel Burns like puking, like his guts out out there. It was, it was so disgusting, and like Dane's ready to kill him, and then the two Keystone cops over there are like, hey, you got a body. And I guess the face has been mashed up enough where we can't tell exactly who it is, but it's enough leeway to give, um, it's enough leeway to kind of give Bernie some time to kind of figure things out. So this is Bernie's game plan on, on why he did that. So he's doing it to blackmail Tom. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to use it to blackmail him into killing Casper so he can still be around. And it's just, I'm just at this point, I'm like, how many, and they're not even interesting twists or turns that the film's taking. I'm just like, how much more convoluted can this plot get? In another exposition dump that's happening in Tom's apartment or the brothel, wherever the hell that is, in the same sequence that we'd seen earlier where Bernie is sitting in the dark waiting for Tom to arrive. He says, I have nothing now. I have no play. If I leave, I have no friends. I have no money, but I do have you, Tom. So I'm going to blackmail you because if they find out that you didn't kill me, they're going to do you in. So I'm going to milk this for all it's worth. Here's the thing, though. Okay, Okay, so whatever, I guess. Back to what I said earlier. The reason that Tom doesn't die in this scene isn't because he's seen the angle. It's because he's lucky. He just gets a break. Yeah. He couldn't angle his way out of the gunman who's been after him in some short order since the scene where he smashed Mike, whatever the hell his name is, and with the chair, with like he didn't take the money. Mm-hmm. The angling ahead of the curve consigliere Tom to um, O'Bannon mm-hmm. can't see that after I do in Burn Bomb, they're probably going to do me in. And if I don't do in Burn Bomb, then there won't be any evidence. And they might, like, he can't see any of that. And as we walk through Miller's Crossing and Gabriel Byrne is puking, it's just a matter of moments mm-hmm. until they find that there's no corpse anywhere and he, it's curtains. And it really is, like, he's at the Danes. He's saved by, like, three or four seconds. Guns end, and it's just a pull away. Mm-hmm. And then, lo and behold, we come to Mink. Now, we talked about Mink earlier mm-hmm. and what an important character this was. Yeah. That we see once. <laughs> <laughs> this is the linchpin To the entire film right here. This is where the entire film changes. Mm -hmm. You brought up something earlier. Okay. When Tom doesn't do in Bernie, which then is essentially a lie that he's telling to his future mafia employer, which of course is going to be met with your own demise. The question you might ask is, is he doing that because he doesn't want to kill his girlfriend's brother? Or is it because he has a good heart? Either way, the result is the same. Yeah. We're playing on the soul of Tom. Mm-hmm. He's a, There's a good man in there. Yeah. What up to this point in the film has made you think or even give two shits about Tom having the heart of gold? Why Why do we even care about that? I don't, I don't know because I don't want to say Gabriel Burns sleeping his way through the movie because he is acting. But it's so passive in, in his actions, you can't really get a handle on him. Yeah, he works for the mob, but he's not killing people. Yeah, he's got this girlfriend, but he doesn't want to turn in her brother that he could easily do. I don't know. There's even a weird relationship between Burnbaum, Bernie Burnbaum, and and Velma. Is it Verna? Is his sister. Bernie admits to Tom, 
the Verna will sleep with anyone. Matter of fact, she even tried to sleep with me to get her way once, and I'm her brother. She's messed up. And there's a moment in that film where Verna asks Tom what happened to Bernie, and he doesn't quite admit that he did him in, but essentially says, oh, you won't see him anymore. That's taken from The Godfather, but oh, you won't see him anymore. She smiles, kisses him, and walks away. So the hitman or consigliere with the heart of gold has sidled up to the hooker with the heart of coal who doesn't care about her brother that she tried to seduce. And we are just getting deeper into the weeds on what has the potential to be very interesting character interactions, but never play out to any level of significance for the remaining, Jesus, 45 minutes of this film right? still to go. Yeah, exactly. There's it's... still 45 minutes at this point. Okay, so I'm going to blackmail your blackmail with my blackmail. So Tom's yeah, going exactly. to use Mink's sudden disappearance to convince Casper that Dane has betrayed him. Because mm. <laughs> no one wants to tell the truth anymore because it's going to get as someone killed. So then we get the, the final confrontation. Right, we brought up that, that Dane character a lot. For those of you that haven't seen the movie, Dane is essentially Joe Polito. That's Casper, the uh, the Italian mafia. That's his right-hand man. That's his Tom. He's he that, That's exactly, that's his Tom. So there's a corollary between those two characters. Let me ask you this, Matt, because he's in the next scene, and I kind of didn't know why he was there, but who's this boxer character? <laughs> so that's the next. Okay, so here's where things get even more in the weeds. Having been thrown out of O'Bannon's club, speakeasy, brothel, my apartment, whatever that place is, Tom returns later to ask the bartender who's his buddy if he has any leads on any gambling tips for the next fights coming up this weekend. He gives him one. And it's about this guy that they go and visit. Blink and you'll miss that scene. Yeah. Well, you're probably asleep, so you might miss it anyway. So that's why he, that's so he so he being Tom after okay. receiving this tip okay. goes to visit that that pug. And here's where I don't have an answer for you. I'm not sure mm -hmm. what he tells him. Does he say don't throw the fight? You should throw the fight. I'm not sure. But we I can think he throws the fight based on how his face looks in that in the in the room there. So now we're at the guy who was passive and violent with the heart of gold has then reverted to, oh, this is a movie about his problems with gambling, or maybe he wants to make money. It's not what the movie's about. It's not what the movie's about. That's a problem, yeah. Tons of And them. I don't want to say Gabriel Byrne's a bad actor. It's I mean, not. he's fine in this thing. I couldn't do any better. It's nothing to work with. Yeah, maybe no other actor would have a chance at this. You'd have to be such a big presence to figure it out on your own. Do you imagine trying to work through the screenplay with character motivations? What about Michael Keaton? <laughs> you know, because Keaton has that like intensity where he's like, you don't know what he's thinking behind his eyes. So, like I would take a little of, of, of uh, intensity to go with the passiveness because then I kind of get a little bit better on like where he's going to go. Understated can be scary. Yeah. The person who doesn't say anything can be terrifying because you never know what they're going to do next. There's a play there. I just, again, don't know what Gabriel Byrne is after. The girl, money, a job, a fresh start, gambling debts. I I, I don't know. I don't know either. Because he went to Casper because I need a job. Kill this guy so we know you're loyal. He doesn't do that. So is 
he's loyal to Verna. It's a little bit of everything, but then kind of you don't know which one at the same time. So if this is a slice of life movie and just experience all of the irons that are in the fire for Tom, then you have to at some point tie all of that up in a way that he's able to bring it all together and either die in very meaningful cinematic fashion or one up all of them and get away with it. And that eventually does happen, but not in the way that the slice of life ties up. Like this isn't Richard Linkletter's about a boy. This is not that film, right? Cause that's that movie. Here's just a bunch. Richard Curtis, right? Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The one, no, the one about the, oh, the bo- little boyhood. Yeah, there you go. That's Langlater. Yeah, sorry about you know the one where we watch the kid yeah, grow yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just watching this kid grow through a sur- like series of circumstances in their life. Mm-hmm. This isn't that. So it's not. If it's supposed to be slice of life and check out this guy who's this Mister Fixic and all all the stuff they have to do, they do that show. It's called Ray Donovan and it's done brilliantly for four seasons. It fell apart later. Yeah, this isn't that. It isn't that. We're really, really, really lost now. This movie. <laughs> We're lost. And then we have this. Son of a bitch! You lousy son of a bitch! If there's one thing I can't stand, it's a double cross artist! I had a feeling about this son of a bitch! Shut up, you son of a bitch! You lousy son of a bitch! I'll give you something I'll holler about! It's okay. The day made him do it. It's okay. It's not important. Then make him shut it. And we do the same to Mink this very same night. We can't double cross Mink. He wants to spill the whole setup. I've never let a son of a bitch walk. You've never crossed anyone. Four o'clock, my place. Mink's coming in on his own hook, so I promised him the money. Don't make me out to be a liar. <laughs> Look at this, kid. Something I guarantee to all my boys. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> so Casper kills Dane because of the, the double cross. Don't ask me what the double cross is because I don't know. I, I, I couldn't oh, tell the you. The double cross was using Mink's uh, uh, disappearance as, as a double cross. <laughs> as a double cross. <laughs> and then, I don't know why that guy's screaming, first of all. Me either. He's traumatized by something. Maybe That's we, the boxer, though. That's the boxer guy, because he had to kind of throw the fight. But we kind of, in that scene, we get the, the, the finale, at least, of the, the film that's at play. We're like, we're going we're gonna to go kill Mink tonight. He's going to meet, meet us there. But it's really... John Turturro that's that's waiting for him who wants to 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 kill Casper. So we get to the final sequence here. Thank God. <laughs> Thank, Thank God. You. And Casper goes into the building first. We hear some gunshots so then Tom goes in sees Casper dead there on the on the stairwell and then it's John Turturro who is like look look we did it like we did this thing and why at this point does he want to kill Burnbaum? I don't know. Burnbaum doesn't have any money. I guess you could say maybe he's has some some dirt. I think on he's, Tom. I think he's trying to kill him because because <laughs> he blackmailed him or attempted to blackmail him. So the movie's about revenge, I guess. Oh, yeah. Which I would be willing to buy if we kind of saw how revenge-seeking Tom really was in this film, but he's really not. 
Okay, so at this point in the film, after um, Joe Polito's character is killed on the stairwell by Birnbaum, who was waiting unbeknownst to Gabriel Byrne in his apartment, Mm -hmm. right? So Casper's dead through the rails on the stairs. Birnbaum has been there. He shot him. Gabriel Byrne pulls off the worst sleight of hand ever to trick Birnbaum. And that's, he says, give me your gun. And Birnbaum says, okay, I guess we're friends. You can have my gun. Then pulls Casper's gun off of Casper's dead corpse, uses it to execute Birnbaum, leaves Casper's gun with Casper on his corpse, gives Birnbaum his gun back that he just gave Tom on his dead corpse to look at, make it look like the two of them died in some shootout on the stairwell. That's the trick. Hey, can I have your gun? Hey, Jesse, can I have your wallet? I'm going to go spend your money and then I'm going to give back to you when there's no money left in it. I mean, we are rivaling <laughs> like American you, hustle at I this like point. I like how you called it slate of hand. That's hilarious. <laughs> and we fade out uh, mercifully. So he kills him this time. Look at your heart. What heart? Stupid. And so, yeah, so, so, so that's done. So now that the, the these mob factions, everyone's dead now, it, it appears. That you never cared about anyway. Yes, that's, that, that's, that's the problem. The, the city councilman has shot the PTA president. Yeah. Over homeowners' dues. Yeah. That's, anyway, keep going. Sorry. So the film wraps up with uh, the funeral for, for Bernie. And then we kind of have Leo and Tom kind of making up and, and asked to, to, to kind of give him his job back. And, and he doesn't, Gabriel Byrne doesn't necessarily accept his, his posting again. And instead, we're, we're, are we there in Miller's Crossing again? It's the woods again. Yeah. Uh, and then the film, and then the, and then the film ends. But you're, you just said it so well. Like the people dying and the people double crossing, it's, it's, it's not what the film, or it's not what we were led to believe what the film was about. There's just so much blackmail and setups that you really truly need notes to to know by film's end what has truly happened. If you step away to go to the bathroom, you've missed a scene with the boxer character that's going to set up. The whatever th- the end is. Yeah, whatever that whatever's happening there too. So what? Okay, I want to ask you though. What direction from the Coens did they give the boxer to just say, scream, sit in that chair and scream? Is he calling for help? See, that's an element of uh, comedy that doesn't quite work for me because I, I feel like it's supposed to be funny. Like, why is this grown, hulking man like just screaming in the chair there? And as annoying as the audio is for that, the visual with it's just as equally annoying. Maybe this is something. So, so the film's over, and I you forgot the other final twist. What's the final twist? And that's there. So after Tom asks, I'm sorry. After um, uh, Leo asks Tom to come back into the Irish version of the mafia, Leo's car drives away and leaves him in Miller's Crossing with no way to get home except his own two feet. Is that forecasting? there are forces working against Leo that are going to do him in as well. Possibly <sighs> Miller's crossing I, part two. Just don't, I don't need another twist with no, 
just get in the goddamn car and drive away and give me a closing moment in the film. Because what we get is Leo just shuffling down the leafy path as Tom leans up against a tree and watches him saunter off. It's just hard. Okay, so... What is that? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think Gabriel Byrne is just kind of one emotion this whole film, whether his romantic emotion, his... um, When he's being double-crossed, when he has to confess, like, he's all just kind of the same. Mm -hmm. I don't see any kind of change there. And I'm not criticizing him for being bad in this movie because he's doing a good job. But it has to be the story that was the screenplay that was written for him. I mean, his character just has no room to emote. If there's a character arc, which is what we want to watch the character go through and become a better person through the forces that oppose them per screenwriting 101, then this is the most linear arc ever. You're going to start off quiet and passive, and you're going to end up quiet and passive after all of the things that you've done. Nothing's going to change one iota. Yeah. And maybe maybe that's the Cohen saying like like hey I feel like I should like do more in this scene or like no you need to stay stay this this version like it could have been them too so I guess yeah fifteen million dollar budget five million dollar gross so it didn't wasn't necessarily profitable in that regard no but I told you I was like I would never want to make a movie in this era like just to kind of recreate the fashion and the the architecture and the vehicles that have to be driven around in. I want no part of that. Unidentified city. I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, it's not necessarily New York. They did shoot in New Orleans. So I assume maybe that's New Orleans, but we're never really told. So allegedly that's not supposed to be super important to us then. Cause the setting isn't necessarily taking place of, uh, in, uh, as a character in this, in this film here. Did you get any film noir vibes from, from this? Yeah, it plays around in that. I would say it, it's film noir in the way it convolutes the plot. That's a lot of, not my favorite film noirs, but a lot of them tend to do that, like make it as confusing as possible. Marsha Gay Harden's character checks the boxes for the femme fatale. And we do see our protagonist with feet of clay who is entirely compromised, but only slightly better than the bad guys that opposes him. So there's all of those things. There's not a narrative element, so that's not there. Most of the scenes in this film aren't at night. They're during the day. So all of that being said, yes, there is elements of noir to them or to it. I just don't think it does anything to make the film viewing experience better. You brought up something. I think the date's important. 1990. For no other reason than we're about to move into a decade where the thriller I think has its best run in the history of cinema, the Mm nineties. And they know because they, they have one of the entries in that, which would be Fargo. Mm -hmm. It's early in the decade. So it doesn't have to elevate its game to keep up with the sevens and the other things that are along those lines that, that did such a good job with that. I even think memento might be 99 if I'm not mistaken, but maybe I'm early on that. It might be 2000. Anyway, right there at the end. So that's a great decade for thrillers. Amazing decade. Yeah. And so I don't want to judge it against that in the way it was released, but looking back at the decade as a whole, I don't even know if that would have been a good thriller in the 1980s for me. They turned down Batman to do this. The Coen brothers turned down Batman to do this film. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know if I wanted them to do, to, to do Batman. It would, that, that certainly doesn't seem like a film they would make. Oh. Um, this is the last uh, film um, cinema, uh, 
shot by uh, Barry Sonnefeld, who would go on to his own directorial career with Men in Black and Adam's Family. Um, but the, from this jump, from this film going on, uh, so I think Barton Fink is next. Mm-hmm. It's the Roger Deakins show, which arguably the best cameraman cinematographer of all time. I mean, the, the Coen's films going forward have such a look to them. You can really tell that it's one of their films and they really make you feel the environment. Maybe I could have had that in that in this film had he shot it. I would have felt that world a little more. I'm uh, shocked when you look at the way their careers unfold that they were able to keep it going. So, okay, they start off with a pretty big hit, Blood Simple. Follow that up with a pretty big hit in its own right, Raising Arizona. I wouldn't say stratosphere levels, but certainly these guys are players. Miller's Crossing didn't make any money. Barton Fink did even worse financially than Miller's Crossing. Hudsucker Proxy, one of the most atrocious films that's ever been made ever. (laughs) And that's not even going to be my top one on the list of three worst. Oh, God. And then you slay it. With Fargo, yeah. In 96 with Fargo. And then come back with one that I don't know if made a ton of money, but was received pretty well and certainly popular, The Lebowski. Mm Mm-hmm. And then two years later, oh, so we're in the middle, oh, brother, where art thou? So we're in a good space now of three really, really solid films. Fargo, you know, Big Lebowski, and Big... Oh. And they kind of do it again because then they come back with Intolerable Cruelty, yep. Lady Killers, and you're like, what the hell are these guys doing? And then they do No Country for Old Men, and they they slay the Oscars that year. So I don't know. It's a bit of a roller coaster. Oh, it is, yeah. I'm shocked that they were able, and maybe it's because of that relationship in the apartment and Ethan or whoever it was being married to Frances McDormand. Joel. Okay, yeah. Joel. Because mm-hmm. she does, as much as William H. Macy is really good in that, Marge Gunderson is terrific. She's amazing. That's Academy a- Award winning role. Oh, she's killer in that. So that movie works on a shoestring budget with mostly Coen Brothers Incorporated t- people working there. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked that that movie got made. I'm sh- I'm shocked that film got made. Maybe you'll find this interesting. So they actually suffered from horrendous writer's block while doing this. They actually had to like stop writing it and put it away for a bit. This particular film? This film, yeah. So they went and... Um, well, that it shows, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe they got bored with the material. Yeah. And they were just like, I don't know how to crack this. So they put it away. And then they, because of the writer's block, they're like, well, let's make a character about writer's block. They wrote Barton Fink in three weeks after that. I am not any space or any kind of an expert to criticize the way they write. So mm-hmm. I, I, I want to be careful how I do this. The way you and I start is what is this movie about? And we say it's about family or it's about this or it's about that. And that drives most of the decisions and conflict in the film. It is the simplest thing. It's a one word answer that this is what your movie is about. Mm-hmm. And most time for you and me, it ends up being family. Yep. If they are suffering from writer's block, that might have been avoidable if they had just done that. What We brought up five different possibilities that are all teased. Sure. Any one of them would have been okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, to, I cut you off. Go. No, I just wonder when they were writing, they just fell out of love with the idea and they're like, well, this Barton, well, let's kind of dive into that and then we'll make that the next film, which it was with John Turturro in the, in the title role. Let's give the guy who was the most emotion in this film, let's give him a leading chance in that thing. Can I tell you something funny that happened today? Okay. So I I swear to God, I finished Miller's Crossing, and I'm just sitting there on my couch, befuddled, like exasperated, just troubled. 
And no sooner does that happen than I just, I've got like 45 minutes to kill before I needed to run an errand. I start surfing and I find Barton Fink okay. on during the day. I got to tell you, mm-hmm. that movie sucks too. <laughs> the ending of that movie is even worse than the ending of this movie. It's been years since I've seen that one. You should revisit it. That is, again, that's not even going to make my list of three worst for them, but yeah. that movie sucks. Terrible. I'm like, oh my God, I remember <laughs> this movie now. How much it, oh. You're just having a moment with the cones today. Oh my today. God, it just was not a good cone afternoon for me. What's your favorite tasting note of Miller's Crossing? I don't know. I, I There's nothing in my mind that sticks out as like that was a... I don't know if I have one, Jesse. All right. You can, you're allowed to not have one. So right, no. Let me grind for a minute while okay. you think about it. Go ahead. Well, mine's the Albert Finney parkouring out of his house to shoot down the road to Danny Boy. I like how the, I like the music that's set to it. I like the, the, the tone that we're going for. This is the comedy that they work well in. It's violent. It's ridiculous. I want more of that and less... Because I think it's they're trying to be serious, you know what I mean? Yeah. Not that they're not good at that, because they've they've slayed that in other regards. But I like my Coens with a with tongue in cheek. Okay. And I needed more of that. I I would like this more if there was more of that. But this film just takes itself so seriously from beginning to end. It takes itself so seriously with what I couldn't get past the PTA member taking on the city councilman. Mm-hmm. It wasn't serious. Some Saturday night undercard fight. Yeah is the crux of the nefaria where they're going to spin their plot. No one cares. Like literally no one cares about that other than the characters are involved. And so if you want to make them small time, then that's your story. The struggle of these small time hoods trying to make it big. Mm-hmm. There's a great story to be told there. Yeah. And that's a space I could see them really killing in. Mm-hmm. There's an element of that in the big Lebowski. Yeah. I mean, that's misidentity, but there's, the small timedness of that plays through pretty well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have an answer for you, man. I'm sorry. I, no, there's a, not a moment for me. Well, that's that's what it says about your 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 take on the film. Yeah. Is there a? Oh my god! We need to take either a shot of the Amador or the Bell Mead to kind of wash this down. Yeah, M- mine would have to be the, the the clip with the screaming boxer and the and the. It's interesting in the way it's shot. But tonally, it's not the type of film that was that was made. I mean, you have this execution, this crazy camera work. You have this man screaming, and I really don't know why it's being kind of done the way it is. Against a roaring fireplace backdrop? I like it, but then I kind of don't like it. I'm at a weird spot in that film. That's my oh my God moment because I feel like that guy in there, I'm like, ah! Okay. <laughs> I feel a little of that right now. If the title of the film is Miller's Crossing, then when we go there, that should be a big moment. And the scene you're describing is far more important than the one that I'm about to describe. But my oh my God moment is watching Gabriel Byrne puke. Because <laughs> it is really real looking puke. It's That's gross. A, I'm one of those guys that if I see that, I have a pretty good constitution, Jesse. Okay. I have a daughter, she's eight. And yeah. so I've been through a lot. Yeah. I'm going to tell everybody the most disgusting thing that's ever happened to me. This is a true story. Okay. You all will be there one day too. If you don't have kids, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. She was pretty sick and I held her up for a minute to kind of look and see what was kind of going on downstairs. And she threw up right on my face. Ugh. I mean, we are talking soaked, <laughs> but I'm one of those sympathy pukers. And when, 
you know, most of the time they'll turn away from the camera and you don't see it, but they give you the full brown sludge spewing out of him. So that's pretty good. That was pretty gross. But that being said, if that's my own, like that's uh, not, that's not a ringing endorsement. Yeah, you're right. It's not. Is there a master distiller on Miller's Crossing? <sighs> Marsha Gay Harden is okay. Maybe her John Turturro's character is pretty good. Bushimi does a really good Bushimi for the 30 seconds he's in it. Um, Again, like I think you said it really well. I don't know if there's poor performances. I think the performances are the best they could do with what they were given. I don't even know if it's a terribly made movie. It's very competently made. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I'll maybe give it to Totoro because I'm a fan of his, and I think he does shmarmy pretty well. Okay. I'll give it to that. Reluctantly, I guess. Like it's a throwaway vote, I guess. Mine's Albert Finney. The yeah. film, the viewing at least made me, I don't know if my rating is going to be amazing for it, but it did remind me that I do like this actor and I wish he had done a, a whole lot. He has a great filmography, but I wish like more people would like appreciate like what he had done close to being Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter, Michael Mann's Manhunter. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, he, I think it was him that actually recommended Brian Cox for the part because he couldn't do it. Mm. So... No, big Albert Finney fan. Uh, I want to go watch some more of his movies. He's great at this as playing the Don character. Had he not been in it, like I would have had to have given consideration to him playing a part like that. So how are you going to rate and grade Miller's Crossing? Now, look, it's been a while since we've done this, but uh, our rating system goes from a, like a one star to like a five star, and it starts at the bottom with Rock Gut. We have Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf Ratings. Matt, what are you going to give it? I always like to look at the scores when I watch the film. This is really, really widely reviewed as good, like 90%. Mm-hmm. I just don't get it. There's movies like that. Sure. I, I know the Coen brothers are expert when they're good about crafting an elaborate, intertwined story that makes sense. And I'm sure some of the questions and plot holes that I didn't see, I could say it if I went back and rewatched it. That's just such work. I'm not going to do it again. So for all of the people out there that this upsets, I understand that. And I acknowledge that I don't totally get the film, but this is pure straight rot gut. This movie is awful. That being said, it still wouldn't make my list of three worst Coen brothers films. It's a competently made film. It's just a stupid story. I it's been a while. And I mean this, like we did the the purposely bad cast. Yeah. It has been a while, and I mean a while, since I have been so completely uninvested in a movie as I was in this. I just, had we not had to cut the show today, I would have turned that thing off three or four times. Yeah. I I was done. Done, done. And then- Because it's long, too. uh, Almost two hours. Almost two hours. Rock cut. Awful film for me. I'm going to go well plus, only because, like I just said, it's not a terribly made movie well acted it's well shot it looks good it looks the time and there are moments in the film the albert finney portion or the fight uh with with the guy uh mike star there's moments in there that make me see the emergence of the coen brothers and how they're going to mix humor and violence because to me blood simple is a fairly serious neo-noir film from beginning to end raising arizona raising arizona's a comedy a dark comedy of sorts. And here I think is their first attempt to really try and mix the two, which is 
maybe gonna fall short in some areas, but I think work okay in, in some parts as well. Now they're gonna use that same exact formula that they tried in this and slay it in Fargo, because that's mm-hmm. the same thing. Serious dark comedy is what that film is. So well, plus uh, I'm like you, Matt. I, I don't know if I could ever kind of revisit this one in when I'm reviewing their filmography, but um, I'm glad we did mix it up with 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 the mob and kind of threw. This is going to be such a, a a spectrum of mob films that we've covered. Whatever Carlito's way is kind of middle of the road. And then this one's kind of like very different from that one. And then next week's films, even more different than all of them. So maybe it's the genre that lets you have such diversity. <laughs> I was disappointed in choosing this film. I have to be honest with you because I suggested this film to us. Mm-hmm. It's been a decade plus since I'd seen it. And my recollection of that was it was a little tough to get through. But damn, films change over time. There's sure. lots of films that I like now I didn't like then and vice versa. With the amount of quality choices that were available. Cause I'm like, we're not going to do casino. We're not doing the Godfather. Those are for another day. Maybe yeah, that's yeah. a De Niro thing. I don't know what, where that's a different fit. cast. Yeah. Well, we come back to the mob cast many times. Yeah. It, white, you know, white heat. Um, oh, there's, I love white heat. There's yeah. so many ways we could have gone. Uh, this was a pretty big swing and miss. I thought it was a good choice. Cause it got us talking about the Coens. Well, there's that as well. So, okay. So there's that, so let's wrap this. <laughs> cheers. There's, there's that. Yeah, cheers to your rock cut rating. Cheers, and cheers to, to my well plus. <laughs> cheers to my well blood. Cheers to these two bottles here. Yeah. And let's wrap this thing up with the nightcap. See, there's something silly about that song, and someone's like firing like a Tommy gun, like while that's playing. That it works for me, so take take that uh, as you will. So the nightcap, we ranked the top three in the in the flight. Now we're gonna rank the bottom three Cohen Brothers movie. I'm very curious to see what you got at the bottom here. So let's start at the number three. Intolerable cruelty. Uh, it's terrible, and actually like. Both those people a lot. <laughs> yeah. Bad film. Yeah. Um, all the bedside bullshit. Uh, it sucks. That movie's terrible. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your three? My number three, I thought it could have been so amazing. It has such a killer cast, but it just does not work for me. And it might be who the lead is supposed to be. And that was supposed to be the new Han Solo and a tail Caesar. Oh God. It was just, yeah, it didn't, it, it was not a, not a good watch for me. I was hoping that would be like a burn after reading viewing for me and it just wasn't. So number three, my number two is the HUD sucker proxy. I love Tim Robbins. Great period for him. Bull Durham and Shawshank right around the same time. Terrible, stupid, boring movie. I would watch Miller's crossing a million times before I would really? ever revisit Hudsucker oh, proxy again. What a stupid, horrible concept. Oh goodness. Awful. Still not my worst. Number two for me, the lady killers yeah. remake of an Alec Guinness movie with Tom Hanks, who Tom Hanks and the Coens, this is your shot. And that's the film that you decide to do with him. Oh man. What a swing and a miss. So it's a remake. That was their first chance. Uh, uh, time doing a remake and they failed mightily i'll never watch that one again number one not to be bombastic or rhetorical but one of the 10 worst films i've ever seen 
it was so bad. We got a refund. I still have the ticket stub. We got a refund on this movie. You just mentioned it. Hail Caesar is fucking awful. I mean, we are talking garbage is insulted by what this film is. I don't know how you miss with that cast. Why you choose to do a Hollywood movie by the Coen brothers about Hollywood involving the Red Scare in that manner with that cast and choosing to make the lead, the one they made the lead, that stupid cowboy guy. I mean, the guy that, what, I remember his name. Alden. Uh, yes. Looks like the guy from Star Trek that unfortunately passed away, but it's not him. Mm-hmm. That movie was awful. Yeah. We are talking, I mean this, we are talking serenity levels of bad. <laughs> That's how bad that film is. You have to go to great lengths to make a movie that is that shitty. I hate it. You got to go through great lengths to make you lead the movie too. Yeah, you've done it a few, many times, I think, actually. I kept I, I kept looking at her like, this has to turn at some point. There's going to give us a Coen Brothers twist. And the twist is they're in a lifeboat swimming away, which are rowboats swimming away. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Well, we kept those tickets. We got a refund. And I don't know what we saw, but that movie, yeah. uh, top, like, I don't have them off the top of my head, but it is top 10 worst ever for me. Okay, sorry. That's me lighting that on fire. That's good. Yeah. That's, Go ahead. What's your number? Yeah, one? I could never watch it ever again. Oh God. Uh, number one for me. You mentioned it. It's intolerable cruelty. That's a genre that the Coens don't need to exist in the romantic comedy. <laughs> and I love Clooney and Catherine Zeta Jones, yeah. and it just doesn't work in the slightest. I even like Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. Any consideration? I kind of like it, but it's almost like middle of the road Cohen for me. The man who wasn't there. Um, I've only seen a part of it. So no, what I wanted to say was the three films that I put at the top are in a space that is to themselves pretty darn good. Then I said, they're those two middle burn after reading and raising Arizona. And then as I went through the rest of that list, I don't like no country for old men. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm in the minority on that, but again, that was a movie that I was really ready to leave most of the film to. And that, that has a terrible ending to it. Okay. But that's, most of the other stuff that they've done, Jesse, mm-hmm. leaves me, I wouldn't say cold, but somewhere between cold and frigid. Yeah. I don't, I, here it is. I told you right before off mic, come to a conclusion today about me and the Coens. <laughs> I don't like them. As much as Blood Simple is very influential in what I think about film, Yeah, that might be it. Mm-hmm. Those other two were okay. Mm-hmm. They, I, I don't get it. So Rice Smile Films podcast has made Matt... Come to Jesus with three filmmakers that I'm going to list right now. The Coens, Quentin Tarantino, and maybe you always knew this about him, but also Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they leave you cold and dry, and you just don't think that the shtick is worth its weight on screen. That being said, there are moments in those filmographies that I still also like. Of course, yeah. Um, but, you know, I can make the same case for as much as I love Shemilan, and it is just my own hubris that says that his movies are mostly terrible too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, take it for what it's worth. Yeah. Okay. So if okay. I gave if if I've come to that point, what's the grand acknowledgement? A hundred ish episodes, almost two years we're under close. a smile for you. Yeah, we're close on 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 a hundred episodes. What are we at? Uh, this is not counting the shots. This is ninety five or ninety six. 
So we're going to hit it pretty soon. I have an idea for a shot that I, let me, I just asked you a question, but I'd like to do a shot in the next week since the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is coming out and oh. that's top five that aren't in. Mm, okay. That'd be fun. Sounds good. Maybe Ooh. that's a lead into something else too. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about to get a whole lot musical up in here. Gee, <laughs> <laughs> what cask could it be? Yeah. Decipher. Uh, what have okay, I, so, yeah. what have I come to come to terms with? I don't know if this is necessarily coming to terms because I still, for the most part, really, I don't know. I enjoyed the, the films, but I think our deep dive into Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home really makes me ponder, man, those are just middle of the road types of movies that Marvel Studios makes. They're enjoyable while you watch them, but when you really sit down and think about them, there's a lot of, they're just very palatable films. You know, the one that I think I hear you talk about and you always liked, but I think has ascended into your top five with a bullet and maybe he was already there and I just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Doubt that, but is De Palma. Oh yeah. Last week, especially. I think for you, like we like him, mm-hmm. but as far as underratedness goes, I don't think he's underrated on this podcast anymore. Yeah. And I think, am I, am I going out to, am I getting too far over my skis here? If I no. say he might be one of your all time fivers? No, like when, when, when we sat down and broke down the films and we, we did blow, blow out and, and carry and yeah. high ratings for those ones. And well, Carlito's way didn't have a high rating. It made me realize how much I like his films. I love the untouchables. I love uh dress to kill. And I was like, sisters, sisters and, uh, as I keep thinking, I'm like, I do really like the movies. I, I like that first Mission Impossible. Uh-huh. So I did come up with another one. And maybe we'll both agree on this one. This podcast has maybe made me, made me come around to, man, E.T. is actually a pretty, pretty good movie. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. Yeah. Because it, it was childish. It was... It was what it was. It's not my favorite Spielberg movie, but the viewing I had, it really made me, it made me feel things as films should. So that was a surprise for me. It was a big surprise for me. I I agree with you. We talked off mic about, and we're going to murder this I'm thing. I'm going to slay this little turd alien. I think that got like elevated call from both of us, didn't it? Yeah, I think it was still call, but it was, call plus? It was like the best call plus we could have ever had, so... This movie would dying to be a call movie. It, 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 oh, goodness. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up Turf War next week. So we've had Carlito's Way, Miller's Crossing. Matt, I'm absolutely excited to do next week's movie because as I've, I told you off mic, there's a time when I think it might be the best that the genre has to offer. Yeah. Same year, 1990, Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Heard of that. Have you heard of it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The audio, Ray Liotta. The audio is going to, and I don't like Ray Liotta either, either, but he's so good in that movie as Henry, Henry Hill. Yep. Uh, Joe Pesci, uh, Lorraine Bracco, mm-hmm. uh, Robert De Niro, of course. I think maybe our first time talking about him. I'd have to go back and really, oh no, he was in Joker. Uh, oh yeah. But here more prominent. So I'm excited to talk about Scorsese, the way he makes movies compared to these two other guys mm. and just how much more enjoyable this film is yeah and maybe that just has to deal with his filmmaking style so when's the last time you've seen it it's probably been about three years okay you two <laughs> i watch it a lot been a while it's in the in this genre it's godfather one and this one that i probably watch the most really godfather part two is 
arguably the best of all of them. But that that's one that's so long, you can only watch it ever so often. Yeah. But it's brilliant. You're just having your mind blown when you watch it. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to watch it with you. I just got this new 4K of it. That thing's going to look dynamite. And um, I think we're just going to have a lot of fun next week. The audio is going to just be, I'm going to be cracking up the whole time. Not because it's bad, because the, the, the characters are so real. Oh, yeah. Compared to the living dead in this last film. <laughs> So I, <laughs> yeah. I got to get going. I'm going to go bust up another racketeering, uh, a bottling uh, racket, and hopefully find some more uh, bourbon that's as good as these two bottles. Well, I got to walk home because somebody just drove off in my car. <laughs> so maybe you can ponder my journey from a tree as I head off into the darkness. I'll find you a jalopy somewhere out there. Right. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Everybody have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Miller's Crossing is property of 20th Century Fox, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.